Hey, everybody, before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to make sure you're following Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation. We're on Facebook under that name. We're on Instagram and Twitter under Testis Cancer. That's T-E-S-T-E-S Cancer, C-A-N-C-E-R, which I'm very sure that you know how to spell at this point. So make sure you give us a follow if you're not already so that when we post new content or post reminders for your monthly self-exams, you can be the first one to see it. Thanks so much. Let's get into the episode. The stories shared on It Takes Balls are unique to the individual sharing. Always speak with your trusted medical provider for treatment options specific to you. Welcome back to It Takes Balls, presented by Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation. Testicular Cancer Awareness Month is over, but the awareness campaign continues. Today, I'm joined by 15-year survivor, Mark Neff. He's a writer and a coach. Mark, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we get started, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, I cut hair for 20 years. I sold my business right before the pandemic hit. And, um, you know, I was basically a therapist. I like to call myself a therapist for 20 years. <laughs> when people sit in your chair, they tell you everything. Um, so through that whole journey and through the pandemic, I realized my passion is to help people. So that's what got me into coaching and kind of transitioning into coaching led me to writing. And I just published my first book in January. Awesome. So what we're going to talk about today is you are a testicular cancer survivor. So take me back to when you were first diagnosed. Well, you know, I've always been in tune with my body and I woke up one evening and I had the most severe back pain that I've ever felt. And being someone that, you know, tries to stay fit, I could really tell that it wasn't anything muscular. So I actually made an emergency appointment with my general practitioner the next day. And upon meeting with her, she said she thinks it's a great idea to have a CT scan as soon as possible. So literally they were able to get me in that day. And on the drive back from getting that initial CT scan, I got a phone call that they wanted me to come back for a testicular sonogram. So kind of in a flurry of all that emotion during all of that happening, I kind of in my gut knew that something bigger was wrong. Um, And ironically, at the testing center, they had a world-renowned radiologist in the center that day. And he explained that the testicles in utero are formed up in the middle of the back. Um, and that's why I was experiencing that pain because it had spread into those lymph nodes. Yeah. Had you had any pain before that? Nothing. I had a very non-stereotypical case where there wasn't even a tumor on the testicle. So even having, you know, being adamant about self-exams, I never felt anything. But after the diagnosis, I kind of looked back at some things that had happened in my life. And I think around age nine, I was hit with a line drive in baseball right in the crotch. And I know sometimes they say trauma can cause testicular cancer. So that's the first thing that I thought of. But then secondly, I had a little bit of pain just at certain points, but nothing consistent. Um, And then, you know, I would say maybe five years before the diagnosis, Um, I was using the restroom once and I had the most extreme pain down there that it caused me to pass out and fall backwards at the urinal. And um, they thought that it might've been me passing a kidney stone or something like that. But I'm almost certain that that was something related to the cancer that was growing. 
Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. When you first hear the C word, I mean, what was that like for you? Uh, you know, the best way I describe it is like an emotional storm. I think, you know, I instantly started putting on all these different hats. The first hat was I'm going to fight this and I'm going to get through it. The second hat was how am I going to tell my family and how am I going to assure them that I'm going to be okay? Um, the third hat was, you know, how in the heck am I going to juggle all of this financially? Because you hear about these, you know, cancer diagnoses that, you know, are just so expensive. And again, I think all these thoughts were coming so quickly that that's why I like to call it basically an emotional storm that happened. Um, and then, you know, of course, I took a deep breath and realized that I had to just focus on fighting it, you know, figuring out the best plan for myself and then, you know, getting from A to Z with that plan. So this was 15 years ago. How old were you at this time? I was 32 when I was diagnosed. So right in that 15 to 44 age range. Correct. Um, so, I mean, what was going on in your life at that time? Um, I was in the process of buying my first salon. Um, I was in corporate America for a little while, but I knew I wanted to do something creative. So when I learned how to cut hair, my initial goal was to open my own salon eventually. So I was just about ready to finish that process when I was diagnosed. And the lady that I was buying the salon from was so generous that she held the salon for me until I went through treatment and got better. So, you know, I think looking forward to that gave me a little bit of extra hope in, you know, fighting everything, which was fantastic. Yeah. Had you heard of testicular cancer before it happened to you? I had. Yeah. I think, you know, the Lance Armstrong foundation was pretty prevalent at that point. So, you know, all the live strong stuff was going around and, um, you know, I think with all the awareness of breast cancer too, that's what I paralleled in my mind for men. So it was, I wouldn't say it was always constantly on my mind, but it was something that I was aware of. And I did do, you know, the self examinations regularly. That's great. Talk to me about your, your treatment. I know you went through, um, <clears throat> you had BEP. I was scheduled to do, um, four three week rounds of treatment. So I would do the first week, which would be about, you know, five to six hours a day, five days a week. And then the following two weeks would be the bleomycin. Um, and then that was only maybe an hour or two hours. So I think with the anti-nausea medications that they had just come out with at the time, I never really got sick. But I have to say the thing that surprised me the most and the thing that was, um, I don't know, harder for me to deal with were the steroids. I was so amped up on steroids and even taking one or two Ambien a night, which was prescribed, I was still only getting maybe three to four hours of sleep. Jeez. Yeah. So I think the exhaustion coupled with the steroids, like it was the first time in my life I kind of understood what roid rage meant because I had some things coming out of my mouth that are so opposite of my nature. And, you know, that's the only thing that I could tie it to. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I had, um, like you, the, the nausea meds didn't really make me nauseous until kind of the end of my 
chemo. And then they gave me something for the nausea when it started to get bad called, I guess it was like an off-brand Composine. I don't know if Composine is what they use anymore, but it was like an antipsychotic, but it also worked for nausea. Uh That made me like, I was up for, I took it one time and I couldn't sleep the entire night. And I was like, screw this. I'd rather throw up than feel like I'm trapped in my own body. Like I did. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's such a good way to, you know, vocalize it for sure. Yeah. That was not fun. So, uh, you had a top, you had uh bleomycin, a top Did you have the, I assume you had the orchiectomy as well. And did you have an RPL and D with it? You had the pain in your back. I did. Yes. So I just had the orchiectomy and then the chemo regimen. Okay. Um, how was your orchiectomy? Did you have any struggles with that? You know, I didn't, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a rule follower. So, you know, when the doctors told me to, you know, literally take it easy for that first week, 10, 14 days up to two weeks, I literally did. I mean, I stayed in bed and I didn't do any strenuous activity. And I think that made the healing process better for me. Um, overall, you know, it was just a little bit of discomfort and a little bit of pain. I think going through that process in retrospect, I think I was so worried about what was coming next that it kind of took my mind off of what I was currently dealing with. Um, so, okay. As a 15 year survivor, you noted in your submission that you kind of, you didn't, it didn't really hit you at the time, but it kind of hit you a little bit later. So tell me about that. Yeah. You know, what happened for me is, you know, again, kind of being super aware of my body and my mind, I hit the gates running once the chemo ended. I hired a post um, chemotherapist where we did some work with the Enneagram and we talked about the experience and how I was affected. I also was in a support group, testicular cancer, or not testicular cancer, but just an overall cancer support group for a year um, after I ended treatment. And that's when I bought the business. So I thought, you know, I was faced with my death. So I'm gonna approach life as quickly as positively and as, you know, with full force that I can. So that's when I opened the salon and I, you know, finished all the therapy and I just felt like I was on top of the world with everything. And I would say fast forward about five years from that, I looked around my closet one day and all my clothes were black and gray. And I thought, okay, they're black and gray because I cut hair. That's just what people wear in this industry. But as I kind of did more introspective, you know, I guess, processing for myself, I realized that I was depressed. I think some of the emotional enormity of the cancer experience took that long to catch up with me and maybe jumping into the therapy and doing everything, you know, full force, I probably had buried some of the emotions that I was feeling, um, in an almost kind of survivor mentality to get through it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've always been an optimist. I've always looked at the bright side of life. So it was, it was uncommon for me to have a closet full of black clothes, but I didn't put that connection together until I stepped outside of the situation and thought, wow, you know, I think some of this stuff is now catching up with me that I didn't process or that I didn't confront. Interesting. I think I'm kind of a lot like you and I'm more an optimist and 
you know, it hasn't really hit me. So maybe, maybe my time is coming and I'm wearing a black shirt. So. <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> Talk to me more about the, uh, the post chemotherapist. Cause that's not a resource that I have ever heard of and yeah. people listening might want to look into that. Yeah. You know, she, she didn't specifically claim that that's what her focus was, but she was, re- I was referred to her by some people in my cancer support group. And, you know, she basically just took the enormity of being faced with your mortality and helping figure out how do you process some of those emotions. Um, I think maybe where I, I hate to say that I wasn't as honest because I was really vulnerable and honest with her, but I think that I was so focused on embracing life now and doing the best that I could moving forward that I didn't sit too long in the emotions of what I was feeling while I was going through the experience. And one of the big things for me is I not only stayed strong to get through the chemo and kind of, you know, get through all the treatment, but I ended up becoming the pillar of strength for my family, for my friends, for my coworkers. Um, And the best way I can describe that is I think when you're going through something, you know that you want to fight it as hard as you can and you want to get through it. Everyone else looking at you, they're faced with, oh my gosh, I might lose this person. So I took that strength of wanting to get better and I ended up almost becoming the pillar of strength for all these other people in my life. Interesting. Yeah. Talk to me about, um, you know, one thing you noted in your submission also was kind of people struggling with the idea of masculinity. Yeah. You know, it it really um, kind of creeped into my mind a lot and especially with how much awareness breast cancer gets. And I started thinking, I wonder if men who deal with testicular cancer, you know, take a dent somehow in their masculinity, as I've heard some women do when they're faced with losing a breast. And I think the reason it got me thinking so much is for women, of course, you know, you see breasts more, even clothes. They're like just part of a woman's, you know, makeup where men, you don't see that. So it just really got me thinking. And I, again, coming out of the gates, really didn't think that it was bothering me that much. It was just something I was thinking about. But then probably five to seven years later, um, I started feeling the emotions of like, wow, I feel like I'm missing something. And I, when I went through chemo, it wasn't an automatic insurance um, opportunity to get a prosthetic if you wanted one. And so I wonder maybe if not having that option is what fueled some of these thoughts. And I can't even say if I would get one. Um, You know, I've talked to people that have gotten one and they like that, you know, it gives the appearance and everything of having two testicles. Um, But that was kind of the process that in the thought process that happened in accord in accordance with all of that. Yeah. I think we should start wearing crotchless chaps so that everybody's <laughs> testicles can be seen the same way. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would be a sight to see. Oh my goodness. All right. Yes. L- let's jump back to, uh, to treatment. I mean, you talked about, um, you didn't sleep well. Was there anything else that you kind of experienced with your, your BEP? Did you have any lung issues? I know the bleomycin sometimes causes lung problems. Yeah. You know what? 
with my regular kind of lung checks, I didn't have any issues with my breathing. Overall, my chemo experience was pretty smooth sailing. Um, I think the one thing that I didn't do as religiously as I should have was gargling the salt water. So I think second to the steroids and the lack of sleep was probably the mouth sores and the surprise. It was a huge surprise to me what food I ended up liking and what food I couldn't stand because of some of the mouth issues that were going on. How did your, uh, your taste buds change? Well, you know, I went out prior because I thought I might be nauseous. So I went out prior to chemo starting and I bought, bought a bunch of pudding and, you know, soft foods like that. Well, the first bite of pudding that I took after the chemo had really kicked into my system tasted like glue. So what I found that I was gravitating towards was spicy Thai food, spicy Chinese food, because I think with the taste buds being diminished, I could still get that flavor from those types of foods. So that's basically, yeah, that is what I sustained myself with. That's interesting. My taste buds kind of stayed the same. I ate probably too much Chick-fil-A still. Oh, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another thing you noted in your submission was that your your brother had shaved his head, which I think, you know, that's my brother did the same thing. And I think that's amazing. Talk about your um, kind of familial and friendly support that you had or didn't have. Yeah, you know, I, I was so lucky to be surrounded by amazing support, um, not only my family and, you know, the example of my brother shaving his head to, you know, show support for me. But, you know, the people that I worked with, they immediately planned a fundraiser and raised enough money so that I didn't have to worry about working if I didn't want to. Um, But maintaining a sense of normalcy was important for me as I went through the process. So I did work, but I listened to my body. And on some days I could do one client and on other days I could do five clients. So again, I was just really aware of my, you know, energy and all that stuff to get through it. Um, friends, you know, friends were amazing as well. I think the biggest thing I learned through the experience, I'm a pretty independent person and I've always kind of done things on my own, but I really learned through this experience that you have to accept help and, you know, party, part of the, um, I guess, process of accepting help is then letting people actually do it. Cause I think it's easy to say, yeah, you can help me out, but then you know, it doesn't really come to fruition. But the biggest help that I can remember was with a really good client of mine. And she showed up to the salon one day with like 20 gift cards for different restaurants. And she said, I know some days you're not going to feel like cooking. So just use these to get stuff. And, you know, that just really kind of, that was the essence of me of providing something that could be useful when I really needed it. That's awesome. Yeah. Hopefully they were for, for Thai restaurants. I know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, you talked about working during your uh, your treatment, uh, but knowing your body. I also worked during treatment, but my job was like sitting and as a, working at a salon, you're on your feet. Uh-huh. So what was that like? Um, you know, I really, I went in proactively for myself. And so, you know, until the chemo really started affecting me, I had scaled back to maybe three to five clients a day. 
And, you know, say I did three to five clients on a Tuesday at the end of that Tuesday, I could really start to feel how many people I might be able to do the next day. So I really just catered it to kind of my exhaustion level, how I was feeling. I did take the entire week off when I was getting chemo, you know, five to six hours a day for the five days. And then I would work on the bleomycin weeks. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So as someone who has, you've passed the, I guess five years is where they kind of say like you're in the clear. So 10 years beyond that, do you have any kind of feeling still of worry of um, recurrence of either testicular cancer or a secondary cancer? You know, I think there's always a lingering fear whenever you have a body ache or something that doesn't quite feel right. But what I've realized recently, and especially, you know, since I wrote the book, part of one of my sections of the book is on my testicular cancer experience. And what I realized when I took some still time to write about the experience, I realized that I'm not really afraid of dying. I'm afraid of getting something again that's going to kill me sooner than I have the expectation that I'm going to go. So that was a huge realization for me. And oddly enough, that seemed to take away some of the fear of things maybe coming back or reoccurring by facing that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So as what kind of coaching do you do? Is it life coaching? Life coaching. Yeah. So how, how do you kind of take your experience and and pass that on to others. Well, that's really interesting. I'm still kind of navigating what niche I want to work with. Um, one of the other big things that happened for me post-cancer, and I can't believe I haven't talked about this yet, um, I'm genetically predis predisposed to addiction. And I realized probably seven to eight years into the you know remission time frame. I was drinking a lot to cope with some of the emotions of going through the cancer experience. So I've actually been sober for almost four years now. And awesome. in that sobriety, that's what really gave me the opportunity to reflect and figure out what emotions I had buried and truly process the cancer experience, even though it had been, you know, 10, 11 years prior. Yeah. I mean, talk more about that because I'm sure you're not the only one um, who has kind of used alcohol to cope with a cancer diagnosis. So, I mean, somebody who might be struggling with that. I mean, what, what do you say to them? Yeah. You know, for me, I think in our society, and I hate to generalize on anything, but I think this is a safe generalization. Alcohol is legal. And I think it has become something that we use to celebrate it's something we use to grieve it's something we use if we've had a good day if we've had a bad day we use it to celebrate so anyone that's genetically predisposed to addiction that can be a very slippery slope you know when because i was using alcohol for all those things combined when i started having a bad day towards the end of my chemo i would sometimes have a drink just to see what it made me feel like but I was so exhausted and so worn out that it didn't taste good. It didn't feel good. But immediately after the chemo ended and I started feeling like myself, I jumped right back into the drinking. And at that point, I didn't realize that I might be masking anything. But in retrospect, I realized that I was. Um, so I think my recommendation to anyone is just 
have the awareness of that. And if you're using it, you know, potentially to cover up emotions or to feel safe or to hide fear, it's definitely worth investigating a little bit further. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, so in survivorship, I mean, you, you've written the book. I have, I'm sure you've, you, you work with clients or you worked with clients. I mean, spreading awareness, I'm sure is something that you have done and continue to do. Yeah. You know, I think that writing the book for me was kind of putting my stake in the ground. Um, I, I think my passion is to help people on a bigger level. So when I look at my experiences with cancer, with addiction, um, I think the book is going to give me the platform to do that. But I think the two biggies for me are going to be cancer and addiction. So I'm excited to see what doors are opened and what opportunities present themselves for me to hopefully encourage, motivate and lift other people that could be dealing with these things. Tell me, well, uh, where can people get your book? Uh, the book is on Amazon. What's it titled? Yeah, it's called Diving Into Darkness to Find Light. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. And there's a whole section on my cancer experience. And I my hope is that it will, you know, help someone if they're struggling through theirs. No, oh, yeah, I'm sure it will. Um, what advice do you have for anybody who's kind of just now starting down this road and maybe, you know, was just diagnosed, they searched testicular cancer and this podcast came up? Oh yeah. Well, I think first and foremost, and this is one thing that I didn't do. And I'm grateful for that. Don't go down the rabbit hole of doing a lot of research online, surround yourself with good support and with good doctors and trust that you're in good hands. Um, if something gives you a red flag, certainly investigate that. But I think second to that is just accept all the help that you can get during the experience but also stand up for what you really need during the experience. And I think my example of that is my parents wanted to bring me to their house when I was going to chemo, but I, my home is my sanctuary. So I knew I needed to be there. So I chose to stay home by myself after all my chemo treatments with the expectation that if anything, and if I needed anything, I would reach out to people. So I think just be true to what you need, because that's going to give you even more strength during this whole experience for yourself. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, and I noticed you noted that you uh, did not and have not have children after. Was that ever something that you were interested in doing? And was that ever like a concern of yours when testicular cancer was laid on your, your plate? Um, it wasn't at that point, I was still kind of on the fence about whether I wanted to be a dad or not. Um, I had a very forward thinking doctor at the time for the area that I lived in. And he immediately upon diagnosis had me bank sperm in the off chance that I was not fertile afterwards so that I would have that opportunity. Um, and then over the 15 years since I realized I'm a much better uncle than a dad, <laughs> So I'm content with that. Yeah, that's totally fair. That's totally fair. Um, okay. Um, I had another question. I'll have to edit this. Where was I going? See, my chemo brain sometimes gets me and I forget what I'm thinking. Oh my gosh. Yes. And that's another thing. I didn't believe the doctors when they talked about chemo brain, but when I went and bought a rotisserie chicken at the store and then went home and heated it up in the plastic container, then uh, I was like, okay, now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
Um, okay. So I remember my question. Um, do you have any, you mentioned your doctor is very forward thinking. Do you want to shout out any doctors that you've had? Um, Dr. Holly in Cincinnati, he's no longer treating testicular cancer patients, but I mean, he was fantastic. I felt embraced. I felt um, cared for, and I felt like he was on top of the cutting edge treatments at the time. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, I think, you know, if this is an opportunity for me to talk about my one negative, it's not associated with the doctor at all. But I think another bit of advice or a suggestion to people is really be your own financial um Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ambassador. And if you need to align yourself with someone in the industry to help you with that, I was getting CT scans every quarter at the hospital where I had my surgery. And I felt like that was my only option because that's where the doctor was telling me to go. And my out of pocket for that with my insurance company was $3,000. Mm. So there's where my financial spiral started with the experience probably my third year into remission, I finally said, you guys, I don't know if I can have another CT scan because it's, you know, it's killing me financially. So I said, is there another place I can go? There was another scan place that I could go to have it done. And it was $300 out of my pocket. Wow. Yeah. And this was just simply an awareness thing. I didn't ask the question, so I didn't know. And you know, I think anytime we can find out information like that, it can be so helpful in the overall experience. Yeah. Was it 3000 a pop or was it 3000 was your max out of pocket that you had to meet? 3000 a pop. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I don't know really at this point still what the difference was, but I think it was because it was, you know, one of the best hospitals in the city um, and, you know, their scans, they just charge such a premium price for them with what my insurance was covering based on all the other stuff that I had done. Um, it was just a bit of a nightmare. Talk more about the um, kind of the treatment plan or the not, I guess, treatment, but the surveillance plan after you were in remission. Um, are you still going for follow-ups for testicular cancer 15 years later. I know that with the chemo, they're kind of worried about my, my heart. I don't know if that's a, you know, a me thing or a general thing. Are they checking on your heart because of the chemo? You know, right now I'm just seeing a general practitioner once a year. I stopped my oncologist two years ago. Um, right out of the gates, I was doing a CT scan every quarter. And then I think after the second year, I went down to every six months and then to once a year. And I had a PET scan, I believe three or four years ago, and that showed nothing. And to me, that was my kind of final hurdle in saying, unless my general practitioner or myself finds anything that gives me concern, I'm kind of done with that piece of it. Gotcha. And I think that'll look okay. different for everyone. I haven't had any heart issues, any lung issues. Um, so knock on wood, I'm grateful for that. But I think that, you know, that post chemo um, surveillance will look different for everybody. Yeah. I think maybe mine's maybe just, you know, I'm not a doctor, but maybe mine is because of family history and stuff. And cause I eat way too much junk. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, but Hey, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to, to be on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. 
Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. This was fantastic. And I feel like every time we get to talk about it, it heals us a little bit more from the experience. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts or anything that you didn't mention that you want to get across? No, I mean, this was fantastic. Thank you for letting me share my story and I hope that it can help others on their journey. Oh, it definitely will. Thank you again so much. All right. Thank you so much. For more information and resources for your testicular cancer journey, visit testiculacancerawarenessfoundation.org. You can also follow us on social media at Testis Cancer. We're on Facebook at Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation.